Hello, I'm Karen Iwata with Emith Worldwide, and I'm delighted to welcome you back to another Emith Your Business podcast. As savvy business owners, you know that your biggest payout is not going to come from the salary or the dividends that your business brings in now. It's going to come from the day that you sell your business. And that's what we're all about here at Emith Worldwide, helping you create the proprietary business system that will provide you with that high equity return through our stellar Emith coaching programs. And that's why we're excited today to welcome back our friend, entrepreneur, and author, John Warlow, who's just written the handbook on how to sell your business. John is a seasoned author, speaker, consultant, and serial entrepreneur, and as such, he is an expert in small business and small business owners, and he's just released his latest book called Built to Sell, Turn Your Business into One That You Can Sell. We're doing a series of podcasts with John centered on his eight-step model for selling your business, which is outlined in his book, Built to Sell. And today, we're going to focus on step number one, create a standard service offering. But to provide you with some context, here are the other seven steps to the built-to-sell formula. Step number two, create positive cash flow. Step number three, hire a sales team. Number four, stop accepting other projects. Step number five, launch a long-term incentive plan for managers. Step number six, find a broker. Number seven, tell your management team. And number eight, Convert your offers into a binding deal. John, welcome to our podcast today. So happy to have you back. Oh, thanks for having me back. Well, you know, in our last podcast together, we talked about the big picture, why to sell, how to get ready, um, discussed some of the statistics for successful small business transfer, and we had um, a rather high-level discussion of the eight steps to your model. And that discussion generated a tremendous amount of interest from our listeners. And so I'd like today to drill down a bit into that first step of your eight-step model, create a standard service offering. So can you tell us a little bit about what a standard service offering is and why it's an important piece or actually the initial piece of this process of getting your business ready to sell? Sure. The first step in creating a sellable company is really to find a product or service that scales. And that's what I mean by a standard service offering, something that scales without you personally having to deliver it. And And scalable products and services meet three criteria. They have to be teachable so that you can teach people or program machines to deliver. They have to be repeatable, meaning over time, customers have to come back and back and back and back. I used the example of razor blades last time instead of razors. Think of, in the case of Apple, how much money they make now from selling applications and iTunes as opposed to simply just selling computers. So teachable repeatable, and valuable to your customers. Again, to go back to Apple, the Apple Newton uh, was the first PDA Apple launched, the first personal digital assistant that Apple launched. Um, Very scalable as a product, easy to deliver, a horrible product, people hated it. So it's not just that it's a consumable and teachable product, you've also got to have a product that people like. So those three criteria are the basis of a scalable product or service. And that's really the first step in creating a company that you can sell. Because when a company acquires your business, they're going to want to grow it very quickly. And if it's contingent on you personally delivering the product or the service, 
it's very difficult to scale up very quickly. And again, the really high multiples business owners get when they sell their business typically come from businesses that are scalable. Um, you know, FreshBooks uh, is a business that competes with Intuit. It's a platform of accounting software. If Intuit purchases uh, FreshBooks, it is plugging Intuit's distribution into the FreshBooks model, very quickly scaling up very quickly. It's just an example of how having a scalable product can, can help you grow very quickly. Okay, so what happens if you don't create um, a standard service offering that is scalable. In other words, if, you, if you've if you got something that you're pretty attached to, and we know that most businesses are started by uh, technicians, people who are really good at doing something, and so we find that they're often very attached to that thing that they do. So if they don't identify the standard service offering, they won't sell the business, or will it just take a lot longer for them to find a buyer? They'll be... Un, they'll run an unsellable business, or best case scenario, mm-hmm. they will have be purchased through an earnout. An earnout is simply where an acquiring company pays you maybe a small cash upfront uh, fee for your business, and then the rest of it you earn over a period of months and years. The problem with an earnout is that you lose control of running your business during an earnout period. And you're basically gambling that the relationship is going to work. And at the end of it, if it does not work, you've given away your business and the control over it. So the enemy really is an earnout. What you're trying to get is cash up front for your business. And businesses that achieve cash up front, that sell for, for, for a good multiple up front, typically have as their core a scalable offering. So I, I've lived this myself. I, I, you mentioned on the top, I've, I've run a few businesses. One in particular was a research company. And, and I was a, a technician in the, in the real pure sense of the word. We had 20 or 25 staff members who were all researchers, but I loved doing the research. And so I was always really knee-deep in the actual survey de- design, and we did a variety of different research uh, methodologies. So we would do focus groups, and I would personally moderate the focus groups. Uh, we would do quantitative market research, major you know, telephone surveys, and I would write the questionnaire uh, for the quantitative research. We would do internet research and so forth. And as a result, my business was totally personally dependent on me being there every day. I didn't pass the, you know, the, the, the hit by a bus test. If, the, if I was hit by a bus, the business would not continue. And so when we went through this really challenging time of thinking through, well, how would we create a scalable product. And and when I made the realization that I wanted to sell the business, the first step was really to put all of the different things that we sold onto a whiteboard um, and plot them based on how teachable and how uh, valuable they were to our customers. So focus groups, our customers valued those, but they weren't very teachable. It requires a re, uh, someone who's good at qualitative research to execute. Uh, quantitative research, again, uh, a, a little bit easier to teach people to do survey design, uh, but a little less value, a little bit more commoditized. So we put all of these different you know, research products on the whiteboard. And then one little product at the top right-hand corner of the whiteboard, it represented less than 1% of our revenue were these little monthly research reports that we published. And these were reports where we studied entrepreneurs and we reported those results back to our subscribers. And it was that 1% of our business 
that we thought met the three criteria, repeatable, teachable, valuable. And we said, well, what if we focused only on doing those reports? What, what would happen to our business? Could, could we actually jibe or do a 180-degree turn in our business to focus just on that one tiny little piece of our business that was scalable? And we, in fact, did that. We focused and really built out a product suite around just doing reports. And it was successful for a period of time. We've got um, a number of subscribers to buy these reports, but I didn't have the courage, Karen, to turn off the other projects that we were doing. I didn't have the gumption, the courage to say, all we're going to do is the research report. So we ran two businesses in parallel for a long time. And the problem with doing that is everybody from your staff to your customers to your suppliers smell a rat. They realize that you're not serious about doing just one thing really, really well. And, and so I was telegraphing to my constituency, my market, um, that I wasn't really serious about doubling down on that one product. And so after a couple of years of trying to run both businesses in parallel, um, you know, product quality started to slip in both areas of the business. Um, timeline started to slip. Cash flow got tight. And we had to make a major change and actually stop offering the very product that was scalable. I just got scared. And I went back and really thought through at the, at the end of turning off the scalable product, I, I, I licked my wounds. I went back to the kind of misery of being a technician, doing research and, and qualitative focus groups and so forth. And I, I went back and, and thought about it for a while and realized that the error that I had made was that I didn't focus 100% on that one little product. And so I went back out into the marketplace a year later and said, this is all we do now. And I forced our customers, our loyal customers who had been with us for years, to really make a tough decision. I said to them, you know, I know we've been doing business for many years, and I know we've done a lot of different things together, but we're now doubling down on this one product, and we want to become the world's greatest at doing these one little research reports. And it wasn't until I really pushed our customers to make a decision about whether to use us in this new way or not, did we really start to have better conversations with customers? Customers realized we were serious, and most of them came with us and bought this new product from us. But it wasn't until we had that tough kind of uh, mea culpa, uh, 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 not mea culpa, this, you know, tough meeting with our customers uh, before they actually made the transition with us. So, you know, you, you said something interesting in those three um, um uh, points with regard to creating that standard service offering, and 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 I'm curious as it relates to the the, the sort of um, uh, mindset change that you personally had to go through, and that is you said it had to be teachable, right? It had to be scalable, it had to be teachable, and it had to be valuable to the customers. And I can imagine that many business owners listening to this would say, "Well, you know, my services are valuable. That's why I've you know been." somewhat successful, right, to this point. Um, scalable, they can probably get their heads around. What I what I find intriguing, though, is the number of business owners that we hear from who believe that what they do cannot be taught because it's about them. So, um, for instance, uh, financial advisors often say, the reason that my clients 
do business with me is because they want to talk to me. I can't teach other people how to do what I do. People who are still involved in the sales process do the same thing. Anybody who is in um, arts, people who have photography businesses, for instance, and so forth. I am, you know, the the product, the service. How can I possibly teach it? So I can imagine that you may have gone through a period of time where it was sort of your personal creativity, your skills that allowed you to do the research that you did so successfully. What was that mind shift that you had to go through or that you would recommend others go through to begin to get their head around this idea that what they do is, in fact, teachable if they can get some objectivity about it? Yeah, it comes down to whether or not you want the personal ego gratification of being recognized to being a great you know, photographer, investment advisor, whatever. And that's ego gratification, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it, it feels wonderful to be needed in the world. The alternative, however, is to build a company you can sell. And not everybody wants to do that, but most of the business owners I know would like to know that they could sell it if they wanted to. And that's about having a really a mind share, uh, shift in, in their own minds. Take your example of a photographer for a moment. Photographers are, are in many cases, um, are craftspeople. They are artists. They love what they do. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's not a business you can sell. I came across recently a business that's in, interestingly in the photographic world, but has created a model that meets the criteria of scalable. Let me give you an example. Uh, it's a little company up in Albany, New York, and they do school photographs. It's called the School Photograph Company. And in Albany, they are the go-to guys when if you're a principal and you run a school, uh, they're the go-to guys to get your class pictures developed and get class pictures taken. They've got such a simple model, and they've got a whole methodology around getting kids into the classroom. It takes eight minutes. Uh, they've got little tools to keep the, keep the young kids excited and make them laugh. They've got little uh, cartoon figures and little stuffed animals to make the very young kindergarten kids smile and keep them all situated in the right spot. They've got a formula around this that they're able to teach other photographers how to use and how to do. It's not relied on their personal creativity. They've got a system in place. Not only do they have a system, it's also repeatable. Every year you need your school photographs. Kids get older a year, you want the great school photograph. And of course, it's valuable not only to the, to the parents who love getting the school pictures, but also to the principal who frankly has better things to do than going out and trying to figure out who else they could get in to do the school phot uh, photographs. If this company is good and they've got a formula, well, let's have them back every year. So it's a business that on its surface would never be sellable. Nobody could sell a photographic studio, people would say. But in actual fact, this business in Albany, the, photo, uh, the school photo company, is very sellable because, again, it meets the three criteria, repeatable, valuable, and teachable. So it sounds like when when you're first beginning this this process of deciding, well, I guess at the very onset, whether or not you really want to sell your business. So let's decide that you do. You really you realize that you've put in uh, many years, a lot of um, your time, sweat, heartache, you know, risk, all of that stuff, and you want to get a return on investment. It sounds like really the first step before you can even decide on what your standard service offering is, is whether or not you want to stay attached 
your your example of ego, right? Getting the ego gratification or whether or not you really want to make that separation so that you can figure out through that uh, ability to be objective, what is a standard service offering that is going to uh, be viable in terms of building a business that will actually sell at some point? You know, losing that attachment, I guess, to the things that you might personally um, be good at or personally favor. So Absolutely. That- yeah, go ahead, Karen. No, so that so that you can come up with the um, the service offering or even a service offering mix. So I wanted to ask you about that as well. Um, when you say create a standard service offering, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are providing one um, uh, product or service, but it could be a mix of things that that still meet the criteria of being scalable, teachable, and valuable, but that is much more focused as opposed to taking on all the the other projects that might come your way. And, Correct. And-, and let me give you an example mm-hmm. of a, a mix of product or services. So let's take a car dealership or a car, car mechanic. Uh, obviously, a lot of businesses in America are in the business of helping service cars. And they've got to be good. If they're the, you know, the master mechanic and the owner of that business, they've got to be able to fix brakes, you know, tune up a transmission, uh, replace shocks, replace a windscreen, you know, all of the things that go wrong in a car. And, and that was the typical formula of most auto mechanic shops uh, throughout the 50s and 60s. They, they would kind of be the, the go-to guys to get your car fixed. Well, when Jiffy Lube started, they said, we're going to pick a bundle of services that meet the three criteria. Repeatable, you've got to get your oil changed every 90 days or every 5,000 miles. Teachable, I can teach a high school kid how to do an oil change. Uh, and valuable, makes my car last longer, and I can get in and out in 20 minutes rather than making an appointment with my auto mechanic. Well, suddenly, the Jiffy Lube model takes off. And now, of course, there are hundreds of different Jiffy Lubes, Jiffy Lubes around the United States. It was purchased by Pennzoil, and Pennzoil ultimately was acquired by a number of other oil companies. So it became a very valuable and uh, sellable business. On the surface, being an auto mechanic, it maybe isn't something that you'd think would be sellable. But once you isolate that hmm. product or service bundle that is repeatable, and in the case of Jiffy Loop, they don't just change your oil, right? To your point about the fact that it can be a bundle of services. They change all of your fluids. They replace your windshield washer fluids. They rotate your tires. They, they do a whole service offering, which is all within this kind of uh, – uh, focus of repeatable. I can teach a kid how to do it. doesn't have to be a master mechanic who's been servicing cars for 20 years. The really simple stuff that needs to be done every 90 days to keep a car on the road, I can do that. Jiffy Lube, sellable business. That's the kind of um, you know, example I'm talking about when mm-hmm. I talk about building a scalable product. Okay. So, so the first step then is to figure out what that thing is, right? Something that will scale without you having to deliver it that is repeatable, teachable, and valuable. Then I'm going to guess in order to teach it, you've got to document the way that you do what you do so that it is in fact repeatable, correct? Correct. And the way I, I encourage you to think about this, and I know you guys at the EMS talk about this philosophy of documenting and, and building out instructions for all of the systems that you have. And, and, and just think, I couldn't agree with you more in terms of the importance of this. Again, to be teachable, you need to either document it to such a level of specificity that 
an employee could literally achieve the same result that you could without you hovering over their shoulder telling them how to do it. Either an employee or actually programming a piece of technology to put it on autopilot. Mm -hmm. The way I, I encourage you to think through documenting is imagine you've got a piece of technical machinery and you're actually going to explain and try to document for someone how to turn that machinery on, how to, how to actually get it running, how to watch it work. That's the kind of level of detail you've got to go through in documenting all your systems so that people can really see um, uh, how to deliver the product or service without you kind of marionetting in the background. Okay, so so great, because that specific. Yeah, being very specific <laughs> is critical, absolutely critical for, to, for it to be teachable and therefore um, scalable. But then in your book, you mentioned that you have to, whatever your bundle of services is or whatever that unique product offering is, you need to name it so that is it is differentiated in your customer's mind, but also out there in the marketplace, correct? Naming a product or service immediately differentiates it, and the owner of that product or service then becomes uh, in a much better, more powerful position to dictate the pricing and the, and the terms around that product or service. So to go back to the Jiffy Lube model, Jiffy Lube is a brand. It's not uh, you know, quick stop oil change companies of America. It's Jiffy Lube, and people become aware of what that service experience is going to be like. If they were being commoditized in the marketplace, then uh, that would be a problem. But they've actually branded the, the, uh, the experience to an extent that it, it allows you to take ownership of it. If you're a simple photographer and there are 50 other photographers in your town and somebody wants to get wedding uh, photos done and they shortlist you down to three folks, they're going to ask all three wedding photographers for a price. And more often than not, they're going to go with the lowest price because wedding photography is a commoditized service. Hmm. If, however, you're the world's greatest company that does school photos, and that's all you do, and you have a methodology and a proven track record and you have a brand, well, all of a sudden, you dictate the price that that principal needs to pay to, pay to bring the world's greatest photographer, uh, school photographer into the school. It's a totally different dynamic if you are owning your product or service rather than you're just another commoditized photographer, chiropractor, financial planner, et cetera. Okay, so, so far we've learned that to create a standard service offering, it has to be repeatable or scalable, teachable, valuable. So you have to figure out what it is that you're going to bring to market or offer. You have to document it. You have to name it. You have to price it then you have to be able to communicate to your customers what it's all about, right? So defining features and benefits, which may be new and completely different based on how you've named it, packaged it, priced it, and so forth. And then you have to begin to um, um, sell or create a selling process that will actually um, get it out there and start bringing in those revenues correct? That's right. And really, when we get into steps three and four, it, it, it really does get into the idea of building out a sales force to be able to sell this product or service that you've created. Um, so I think we'll get into more details in, in, in future podcasts, but you're absolutely right. Once you've got it packaged and branded and, and documented 
and you've really landed on that scalable product, the next step is really to start selling that product out in the marketplace. Outstanding. Well, you know, this has been great information for us, and I think it has given us a, a lot to really chew on. That first step is something that I'm going to imagine can take a fair amount of time to to really analyze what your products and services are and where your you know where your best bet is in terms of creating that standard service offering so uh, what is that process like in terms of time frame or, or does it really go fairly quickly you know i think it's iterative or evolutionary, not revolutionary. I think the important thing to do is get a whiteboard out and start right now. Try to figure out what your equivalent is to the 15-minute oil change, to the, the photographic studio that does just school photography. Try to figure it out. But I wouldn't get so obsessed with it that it causes you to kind of uh, have paralysis by analysis, that you're continuing to try to work it out without actually going to market. The best Obviously, test for your standard service offering is to get it out of the marketplace and see what elements of it are most attractive to customers, where you have to nip, where you have to tuck, so that you've got a clean offering. And so I think you know, once you're 80%, 90% of the way there, get it into the marketplace and worry about kind of you know, shaving off the rough edges to it uh, as you get more and more feedback from customers. I think the worst thing you can do uh, is, is try to just get obsessed with having the perfect product or service without ever getting any customer feedback because, of course, it's the customer feedback that you need to really uh, figure out what is most valuable uh, to your customers. So I, I, would, I would say you know, once you're 80 or 90% of the way there, get it out of the marketplace because the marketplace is obviously the most uh, efficient way to, uh, to let you know if you've got uh, a valuable product. Fantastic. John, thank you so much for being here today. And I, again, strongly recommend that you all go out and get the book, Built to Sell. You can actually uh, get it at John's website, builttosell.com. And he has been kind enough to extend a very special offer to the Emith community. You can download his ebook. The Model for Selling Your Business, which introduces you to some of these ideas from Built to Sell. But even better, you'll find a link on this podcast post in our blog and in the resources section of emith.com, our website, to purchase Built to Sell with an exclusive $5 off discount. So I encourage you strongly to do that and begin the process of creating a standard service offering so that you can begin the process of building a, biz- a, a business that you can actually sell. Well, that brings us to the end of another Emith Your Business podcast. Thanks again to uh, John Warlow for joining our discussion today. And join us next time because John and I will be discussing steps number two and three in his eight-step process for building that business that you can sell. Uh, We'll be discussing creating cash flow as well as hiring a sales team. You can find John online at builttosell.com. And as always, please feel free to visit us online at emith.com. Thank you so much, John, for joining us today, and we will talk with you soon. Thanks, Karen. Pleasure to be here.